1: Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections, welcome to the Rhino Cast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands, and balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. This episode of the Rhino Podcast is part two of our conversation with the great Linda Ronstadt. Stick around. Dennis. We've got the second part of your conversation with Linda Ronstadt in this episode of the Rhino Podcast. What do you guys cover in this one?
2: Oh, man, this is a treat. This is kind of, to use a term that's used in, in films, it's kind of a biopic. We start in Tucson and we make our way through Los Angeles. And a lot of the stories that you're expecting to hear, you're going to hear them direct from Linda with no filter.
1: Got to love that. I love music history like this. I just eat it up.
2: She does not lack opinions. She does not lack stories. And the energy with which they're told is just captivating. Not to mention, she is Linda Ronstadt. So to sit there and hear these stories firsthand and for the audience to hear them, it's a treat would be an understatement.
1: And you got to visit her at her house, correct? In San Francisco?
2: Yes, indeed. In San Francisco with her cat at our side. I can't even describe how wonderful it was. What was it like to walk into her house? You know, when you knock on the door, your level of anticipation is incredible. And within milliseconds, I just felt like I was hanging out with a friend. Oh, how cool. She is rock and roll royalty, but she absolutely positively doesn't act it. However, when she has something to say... She knows her stuff. And I'm not talking just singing. I'm talking technical and music and, and all sorts of really deep stuff. And that is why she is Linda Ronstadt.
0: I've had bad dreams too many times to think that they don't mean much anymore.
2: I alluded to this early on. But this is kind of what I figured out. And you'll either tell me I'm wrong or not. But there are very few artists that are interpreters of songs. And that's kind of what I came up with, is when I was really thinking about what you've done all this time, you took songs and you made them yours. You interpreted them. You know, Sinatra did that. You know, the the number of people I can count on, maybe both my hands, that have taken so many songs... And made them theirs and interpreted them. Do you buy that? Because you weren't a songwriter, right? You didn't write songs, but you certainly knew how to look at a song and, 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 and you had some sort of internal clock that said, yeah, I want to sing this one.
0: It would be something that would resonate in me. There'd be a line or a verse that said exactly how I felt at the time. And maybe a week later it'd be something else be about something else but songs with images that you can keep it keep generating like tarot card imagery it it brings something out of your unconscious you know Bob dylan does that
2: yes and you you talked about voicing you use the word voicing so can you describe for people what voicing is
0: well in, in the chords it's where you like you could have a d chord with a d on the bottom or on the top or or a chord with an extra note in it that isn't always there. Like, certain things about your life are covered in a paragraph.
2: Tucson growing up, really multicultural atmosphere. Tell me about oh, that. Oh,
0: my God, it was so multicultural. Like the ultimate melting pot, right? We had a big population of Chinese people who had fled the genocide in Mexico because they were starting to compete for jobs and women in Mexico. So they, they had this thing called the three-day trip to China where they would— load up a bunch of Chinese people on the boat. Wow. Go out a day and a half from the port, dump them overboard, and turn around and come back. So they'd go three days out and come back. And they were doing that systematically through the Chinese community. So they fled for their lives. Wound up in Arizona, where they started vegetable farms and markets. And then the next generation, they're all doctors and lawyers, and they were gone. They were the nicest people. I loved them. And then there were the Indians that, the Yaki that had fled Mexican persecution, also and genocide, and they lived up as, a, as an independent community. They never, they never signed a treaty with anybody. They just were still doing what they what they've been doing for thousands of years. And then there were a lot of Mexicans, of which I was one Mexican Americans, and we had a really we had a really sturdy Jewish community. I love that more than here. You can get you can get better delis in Tucson than you can get here.
2: I will vouch for that.
0: And there was a Greek population. It was just, it was everything, you know? Okay, so you have this melting pot, and you're growing up, and when you turned on the radio. Oh, the radio was wild open then, because there were all these Mexican stations we could get, and they were really great. They played all different kind of music. And then there were all these country western stations that played gospel, white gospel in the night, and... White gospel on Sundays, and then we get these R and B stations. They're called race records. Then they play race records, and we could hear all that. That came from Louisiana and from XERB, Del Rio, Texas. XERF.
2: There was another station in Del Rio that Wolfman Jack was on.
0: Yeah, it was that was XCRF. It was Del Rio, Texas. Yeah. Wow. XCRB, and, and he came over to California at some point and Went to XERB. Right. But we we heard Wolfman Man before he was, even, you know.
2: Before anybody knew who he was, yeah. So you see, so you had top forty. So all of this, a lot of rhythm
0: and blues we listened to, really. So tell me more about that. Well, I loved the um, the bird groups like the penguins and the the jays and the orioles and the you know they. I loved them. I loved I loved duop. I was literally just mad for duop. You could get those stations that were really far away. You could get better reception at night when the other stations just signed off. So we'd stay up really late to hear them. Earth Angel was the first. Earth Angel was the Penguins. That was the first doo-wop record I bought. Wow. It had Hey Senorita on the other side. Okay, so doo-wop got into your head, and around the house? We used to harmonize, my sister and brother and I. We'd sing doo-wop, we'd sing soap commercials, we'd sing anything that came into our heads, because we could harmonize together wow. very naturally.
2: Was there a moment that your, that your parents realized that you weren't going to be leading the typical life?
0: Everybody sang in the family, so it wasn't considered as anything special. My cousins all sang. And well, you know, not not professionally, but but well, gifted amateurs, you call them.
2: But where was that sea change where you were? At what age did you go, you know, I'm not going to become an accountant. I'm not going to become a lawyer. I'm not going to become
0: uh, As soon as I heard Joan Baez. <laughs> tell me more about that. Well, she killed me. She, she is so responsible for launching a lot of singing careers i think her focus was so clean and pure and she was such a skilled musician you know she recorded this song called mary hamilton has 900 verses it's just her and the guitar and she keeps it interesting all the way through because she changes her various guitar she has incredible dynamics she has of course that golden voice that's just beautiful and a real purity of intention and it was just shocking when i heard that i said that's what i want to do i want to not her, well, not what she was doing, but I wanted to do something that makes me feel like that.
2: What age did you realize you weren't going to— and I know you've moved back there, but what age did you realize that Tucson was
0: too— I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what was— 17. What? Tucson was just too confining. I did, I, there weren't enough people that liked the kind of music that I liked. And I really was, loved folk music then. And there was a lot of it going on in Los Angeles. Yeah, Ashgrove was in full swing. You know, you could see all these people that I read about and sing out magazine, Pete Seeger and Ry Cooter. I mean, he's the first guitar player I ever heard when I went to Los Angeles. He's to this day my favorite guitar player alive.
2: Did you just hop in the car and show up in in L.A.? Did you know well, anybody
0: there? I knew Bobby Kimmel, who had been our bass player. My sister, and brother, and I had a had a folk group called the New Union Ramblers. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, we don't did. apologize. Perfect name. And we had a banjo player and a bass player, and he was the bass player. And he wanted to make more money playing music, so he he went to L.A. and started working in little clubs. It's kind of like a blues player.
2: So, you get to LA, you knew him. Where did you move to? Where did you live? Did, were you in Santa Laurel Monica? Can- you went to Santa Monica? In Pacific
0: Ocean Park.
2: Really? Yeah. All the way out west. So, you weren't near Laurel Canyon or any of that?
0: No, I was on the beach in Santa Monica. We paid $80 a month for a darling little, you know, little wooden cottage from the turn of the 20s. So, how did
2: you find your way into the scene at that time?
0: We went to the troubadour, we went to the, the trip, which was up on Sunset Strip. So I saw the birds. We went to the Ash Grove. That's where I saw Rye. Rye was playing in a band with Tosh Mahal. That was pretty good. So I I just thought, oh, they got some really good players here. And I met Jackson Brown right away through a mutual friend. He was seventeen. And I was eighteen. And he had written These Days. He played it for me, and I just was blown away. I thought oh, they got good songwriters over here. Might as well stay here. Yeah, Kenny Edwards was a, a young guitar player that was hanging around the neighborhood. I, I don't know how Bobby met him. I think he met him at the Ash Grove, because Kenny used to work there. And he was an impressive guitar player. I mean, I'd never heard people playing like that in Tucson. But, you know, we just harmonized with what we had. I've had all the sung harmonies my whole life. I, I didn't think it sounded as good as I sounded with my brother and sister, but that we had a family blend for that, and they couldn't leave. My brother was working for the L.A. Police Department. My sister had three kids, so they stayed, and I went. I went out.
2: And again, I'll let you tell the tale. In terms of how you came to Different Drum and Michael Nesmith, you heard a completely different version of it.
0: Yeah, I heard um John Harold sing it from the Green Bar Boys. Right. Yeah, I had no idea who Michael Nesmith because I don't think the I don't think the monkeys had it happened yet, or maybe they had. Anyway, I just thought it was a song that, that John Harold had found someplace that I didn't know was by Michael Nesmith. Yeah. I just came in with the record to Nick Vinay, who was our producer at Capitol, and said, I think this is a hit song. And I really like it. I, I really liked what it had to say.
2: I like the words, you know. So you do different drum, and that's kind of a, you know, that kind of, it was. It was like a top 40, fit right into the moment, right?
0: It didn't fit any particular category except pop music.
2: But where where did you realize that it wasn't going to be a that you weren't going to be a band that you were going to be. Well,
0: I think when when I the Stone Pony split up, I was kind of stuck playing the guitar. I'm not a great guitar player, but I could play C G and F and I could move the capo and with C G and F I could play a lot of country songs. So I started singing Hank Williams songs.
2: Ah. And so and Kathy Klein. And so at that point, because again, we're talking let's 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 kind of try to compress say 68 to 74, because that's a lot of, that's a lot of time, it's right? A lot
0: of wandering in the wilderness.
2: But that's what's interesting though, right? Because it was Silver Threads and Golden Needles, which was definitely... Name a few things that you remember between that, because when we say wandering in the wilderness, you were recording the whole time, but you must have had a and people at Capitol going...
0: Nobody ever suggested songs for me. I could tell the songs. I would love to have had somebody suggest songs for me. I, I Why
2: do you think A&R people left you alone? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, think Maybe about I it. Maybe I
0: bit them on the leg. I don't know. Maybe
2: you did. What, what rare artist gets away without the A&R going, hey, 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 Linda, hey, Linda, here's a list of songs we want you to do on your next just record. It just
0: didn't occur. It didn't happen. Bobby was writing a lot of the songs. They weren't that good, but he was writing them. You know, I I started playing clubs myself as my, as a single artist. And I remember going up to Woodstock and meeting Eric Kaz. And I'd already met Gary White, this other good writer, Jerry Jeff Walker. And they turned me onto the McGarrigle sisters. So I came home with all these songs and not a really sympathetic producer, you know. John Boylan tried to help me a little bit, but...
2: Tell me more about the not sympathetic producer. When you say not sympathetic, meaning that he didn't get what you were trying to do?
0: I didn't get what I was trying to do was the problem. Oh, you couldn't get him to give idea, you the sound. I had an idea, but I couldn't quite pull it off i didn't have the, the technique to pull it off and he was trying to help me but he was trying to help me in another direction
2: so where was he taking you was he taking you bigger
0: he would like take me to muscle shoals my singing style is more influenced by mexican music than anything interesting my vocal production and my phrasing
2: back to to glenn and don and those guys where did they fall into the mix well
0: they came later let's see well i i remember i lived in Tabanga canyon i had a, I had my album cover called Hand Sewn Homegrown in front of this little abandoned stone cottage that I wanted to live in. I had another hit. I had Long, Long Time as a hit. Yep. And that kept me going. And I and I went on a lot of television shows, which I hated. And then we played Colleges because I had these two little hits. But it wasn't until You're No Good that it, I finally felt that I had arrived on the scene.
2: When did you know that your backing band was no longer going to be your backing band and that they were going to go on their own and suddenly oh, right become away. the Eagles?
0: Don and Glenn were rooming together. On on my tour, I had Don and Glenn. They roomed together on the road because we couldn't afford a room for everybody, so everybody had to double up. And they started writing songs together. And they said, we we like writing songs together. We're like singing together. We're going to form a band. I said, great. We have some suggestions for the band because I was dying to get Bernie Ledden back in the band. I said, well, you've got, well, you're getting your songs together and getting a record deal and waiting for it to get released. I have gigs, so stay with me. We'll have a good band, and you'll... Be working on your project, so
2: their projects. Yeah. So we which, got
0: we got Bernie Ledden and, and um, Randy Meisner, yeah. Randy Miser, yeah. Randy Meisner was John Boylan's idea, and Bernie was my idea, and they loved him when we introduced him, They they, they I remember, they sat down. Bernie had written "Witchy Woman" with Don. I think he and Don wrote that. They came over to my house. At, I was living with John David Souther. We went out to the movies so they could have some time alone. We came back and they'd been singing in the same room all afternoon real resonant room, so they'd really gotten their voices tuned into each other. And they got their harmonies all organized, four part harmony. And they sang Witchy Woman and went Huh, that's such a hit.
2: Again, it's it's impossible not to go to When Will I Be Loved. Same thing. You were inspired. I'll tell you this, but then I want you to go further. You were inspired by the Flying Burrito Brothers version, not the Everly Brothers version. You didn't know from the Everly Brothers. I
0: forgot the Everly Brothers wrote it.
2: Part of your success is that sometimes the way you came to these songs wasn't the way that other people would have come to these songs where they'd go, oh, I'll just redo because I mean, look, and I, my favorite songwriter of all time is Paul Simon. I will say that without. Amen, sir. Without a doubt. One of the things that's interesting is, you know, I mean, Simon and Garfunkel, they saw the Everly Brothers when they were in high school as Tom and Jerry
0: and they said. But they didn't sound like it when they got finished trying to copy them.
2: That's the point.
0: Everybody copies and you try as hard as you can to sell. But you like didn't different.
2: copy. That's my
0: point. Oh, I copied is, everybody. Well, you sort of did, but you also came at the songs
2: in a different way. Because you didn't always come at them through the Everly Brothers or come at them through the obvious place. You came at them through other versions, not the hit versions. Continuing the theme of coming at things, and I took French, I didn't take Spanish. So there's not a chance I'm gonna pronounce this, you're gonna pronounce it. But when you decided to introduce something different into the pop realm. That being say songs of my father the Concernes right. Way. De mi padre. Thank you. I could never do that. I would Can't I, either
0: my tongue doesn't work today.
2: I would I would butcher it. Two point five million copies.
0: I'll tell you, by that point I wasn't even thinking about business. I just wasn't I was so in love with the music and I wanted to sing it so badly. And I thought I could if I just could put some time in it with the right musicians. And they were really good to me, those guys. I went down to to the band rehearsals and... Los Angeles and rehearsed with this band, Los Camperos de Naticano. Naticano helped me a lot. They, they, they'd tell me when I was going off, off the track. The rhythms are very hard to learn, but I did. Me
2: Based on the people you grew up with and the things you know, if all of these young pop artists who are just like, well, how come I can, there's only two types, well, how come I can't get there, right? I persevere, I play clubs, I do open mic nights, and I can't get there. Or the ones that have the one hit, and then it goes, and it's gone. What would you say to them?
0: What do you say about... I think that they make clever records, but not write good songs these days.
2: I saved this for last because everybody leads with this. They always lead with Parkinson's. It's like the first paragraph of every article is, okay, well, Linda hasn't sung for this long and she's doing this and she's doing this. So what do you really want to tell people about your life today and how things are and
0: Gee, I don't know. I live a really quiet life. I always thought I would travel and knit and sew and garden. And when I retired, I can't do any of those things. But I can still read. That's nice. What are you reading? Linda Greenhouse's book about journalism. Oh, so tell me about that. Well, she's the best writer on the Supreme Court. She wrote. She's written on the Supreme Court for the New York Times wow. for years and years. She's really good, very precise yeah, and she's writing about attitudes of journalism, like whether journalists should be allowed to have an opinion, whether they should even vote in order to show that they're disinterested and that they're fair-minded.
2: Well, aren't these appropriate times for that discussion?
0: Yeah. You know, when you wake up
2: in the morning, there's still lots of things that drive you, obviously.
0: Well, the need to sleep and the need to drink tea is one of them. They need to feed the cat. <laughs>
2: for people who are listening to this and particularly people who might be discovering your music through this, you know, through all of these releases for well, the first time, what do you, what do you want them to know? I don't want to go the Zen way, but what have you, what well,
0: do you? Uh, My involvement with music is first with my family. Cause my nephews are professional musicians and they play and they come over here and stay with me when they, and they perform here, and they, I can hear them rehearse in the living room, and that's fun. But I also work with this little cultural group called the Cenzotles. They're over in Richmond, across the bridge in Richmond. And they run about 300 kids through their their little facility a week, ages 8 to or 6, maybe even to 19. And they teach them how to really play traditional Mexican instruments, the harana, the violin, the guitar, the jawbone. You know, they teach them all the percussions. They teach Mexican music from all different regions, Yucatan, Veracruz. They were so good. I was out on the road with my big show at that time, and I could I know I know traditional Mexican dancing. They were good. And I know the playing the rhythms are just wicked, you know. So I gave them the money to make their field trip, and we become friends oh. conferences "But I've introduced them to Ry Cooter, who just fell in love with them. Wow. Jackson Brown, who went and wrote a song with them and plays with them all the time now. David Hidalgo from the Los Lobos. Records with them on a regular basis. So if I could sing, I would be over there learning from those kids. That's what I would be doing. Wow. But I can still learn a lot from them. I can sing in my head. And I can listen to the rhythms and internalize them. Faithless love.
1: I really enjoyed your conversation with Linda. There's so much that she shed light on. I feel like I know so much more about her career and what made her the person that she is and the artist that she is now.
2: What you learn is this is a woman who earned everything that she got in her career, and she worked hard for it. Live in Hollywood,
1: her new and only live release is available now on CD, LP, and at all streaming outlets. And as always folks, if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next Rhino cast. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Colt and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved.